Welcome to the Forest Overstory with WCU Extension Forestry. The Forest Overstory is a podcast that provides insight and education into the field of forest management, helping landowners to become better stewards of their forest. The Forest Overstory is brought to you by the Society of American Foresters and the Inland Empire Chapter. I... I want to do like a mild switch of gears. I don't really think it's that much of a transition because I I was, again, perusing your book on ecological forest management. One of the lines I caught in there, which I think is relevant to this, is that all forests are working for us. Yes. And I love that line because we think of working forests as producing timber. Um, I mean, that's the sort of the common, I guess, uh, definition of of a working forest, but we know that all working all forests produce ecosystem services in our working forest society, and especially working with forest owners who are usually a little less inclined towards you know timber as the primary objective. Um, we know that their forests are still working; they're still doing a lot of work for us and and society, especially in terms of carbon sequestration. Um, but we also know that you know we're a lot of those forests, especially on small forest lands, have been what we might call degraded. You know, Sean and I have had this conversation recently, actually. I was, we were at uh, a property that I manage for WSU, and I was telling him about some of my plans to restore some of the forests, and because I thought it was degraded. And he asked me, what does that mean? What has degraded me? And I loved the question. I really respect the question, Sean, because it's made me think about something that I just was kind of on autopilot about, about what is actually degraded about this forest that I feel I need to go in and do something. Uh, ultimately, that particular example, I'm still going to do what I said I was going to do. <laughs> but it is still, but it's very good to be thinking about that all the time. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask uh, someone with so much experience in ecology, what does a degraded forest m- mean to you? And what, uh, alternatively, what does a restored forest or what does degradation and restoration look like to you? Well, a, a, a degraded forest is one uh, that isn't function. It's lost some of its functional capabilities. And, uh, you know, this is an interesting topic, and uh, I like to talk about functions in forest, uh, and I like to do that rather than talk about health, mm. something being healthy or, or not unhealthy. The concept of forest health is a very tricky one because it totally depends on your point of view. What are you interested in about that forest? And uh, if a warehouse or forest forester, you know, uh, came around and looked at my forest, he'd just be, you know, uh, very upset about the the big <laughs> trees that are dying and are not being used and uh, the waste that's going on. Uh, and I, you know, I I have a a general principle these days: if you've got a forest without dead wood in it. It's not a, it's it's not a very functional forest. You got to have some dead wood in there to have a fully functional forest. But in any case, uh, I see um, a degraded degraded forest as one that's lost some of its capacities. Um, and one of the things that we did as foresters was we tried to focus all of the capacity of that system on producing wood. And it's a general principle that if you try to manage a forest with the sole objective of maximizing any particular output, whether it's wood, whether it's fuel, minimizing fuel loadings, whether it's... uh, 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 whatever you're trying to do. Anytime you try to, to optimize for one thing, every other things fall off the table. Other capacities of that system are either degraded or lost. Uh, 
And the reason that natural force can do all these things is because nature doesn't try to maximize anything, <laughs> doesn't try to optimize anything. And so the system has this ability to do many different things. And so uh, the principle in ecological forestry is to maintain the integrity of the system. And that simply means not maintaining it in any particular state at any one time, but maintaining it the potential for it to realize all of its capacities, do all of the different things that it can do as a force. And you don't sacrifice any of those in order to maximize a single output. So anyway, that's that's kind of the way that, that I look at it. And, and for example, many managed forests lack a deadwood component. So in a sense of from the standpoint of a natural force, they are degraded. Uh, and we restore that by, in fact, uh, creating some dead wood or allowing nature to create some dead wood for us. Uh, the, of course, the, the biggest restoration we're doing these days is in fire-frequent forests. Mm. And what we've done is to allow these fire-frequent forests to become very dense and to become dominated by uh, by uh, fire intolerant species like grand fir. Uh, and uh, uh, so in that case, you know, we've created, a, we've altered that system completely and made it dysfunctional in the sense that it's no longer resistant or resilient in the face of fire. And it doesn't provide the kind of habitat as well that we, a lot of the organisms would want. And so we restore that by, in fact, going in and uh, altering the structure. If you've got some big old trees still, you know, you start by retaining those. But in any case, you reduce the density of the stand, you shift the composition back to fire tolerant species and you reintroduce fire to the system. So, so I, I see a degraded system as one that's lost some of its inherent uh, natural capacities. And certainly on the east side, one of those capacities was the ability to, to resist and recover from fire. And interestingly, the planning rule for the Forest Service now says that the bottom line in managing systems, these forest systems, the national forest systems, is to uh, restore and maintain the integrity, the completeness, the wholeness of that ecosystem. Wow. It's a big, big ambitious goal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You got to so, know a lot, lot of, to do it, too. Say I'm a landowner. Well, I wish I was a landowner, but for this argument, <laughs> we'll, we'll say I'm a landowner. What would be a, a metric or a number or a thing I can look at to determine that I have reached a level of functionality on my forest that... that you know, shows productivity, shows biodiversity. Maybe those are the words. That's interesting that you asked that because one of the things we've been struggling with, some of us have, is how do we tell whether or not a property is being managed with ecological out with with ecological considerations? How do we identify an owner who is doing above and beyond the minimum requirements of the law. And uh, we really have come up with a number of, of criteria in the Douglas fir region. And you can, you, can, you can tell somebody who's 
who's who's doing above and beyond, are they using longer rotations? Longer than 35 or 40 years? Are they using 70, 80, 90 year rotations? Uh, are they doing retention when they harvest? Are they leaving some of the some of the trees behind? Are they providing that legacy? Are they providing for the continuity of, of biota and structure? Um, are they uh, utilizing natural regeneration as well as artificial regeneration? Um, are they using? Are they having a diversity of tree species, or are they just doing a single tree species? And those are some of the ways that you can really tell whether or not uh, this this owner is doing something that is ecological in, in character and paying attention to that. And um, um, so, anyway, that's. What I that's how how I would advise someone to manage their property, and interestingly, small non-industrial private forest land owners, as a group, don't have economic return as their top goal. If you look at the surveys, and there've been several of them done, economics is important because they have to get some some way to pay the taxes and pay for all of the other things that they have to do uh, to manage that property. So uh, economics is absolutely important, but it's not the most important thing. And secondly, they're interested not in maximizing return on capital. They're interested in getting money, cash, uh, in order to pay the bills and send the kids to college and so forth. And so they have a very different economic criteria. They're interested in receipts. The Timos and the REITs are interested in return on capital. At times you almost think they don't care about the receipts at all. They just want to get a high return. <laughs> now, it's not the case, but the point is that the fact that you know they're following the this global economic model of trying to maximize return on capital you know, means that uh, you know they don't have a chance to begin to do something ecological because it, it takes too long Co yeah. and compound interest kills them forces them uh, if they're traded on Wall Street maybe even if they're not traded on Wall Street. Uh, so the small non-industrial private forest landowners, for the most part, do not use return on capital as their metric for measuring economic return. Thank God. The other thing, of course, that the global model, economic model, which emphasizes capital return, is that it discounts natural capital. It says there's nothing out there in nature that needs to be conserved. There isn't anything. We can substitute for anything that's out there. And most people don't realize that, but that's what the economic model is premised on. And so, uh, anyway, so that, that that's an answer to your question about, you know, how would you identify someone who's doing good and uh, it turns out to be relatively easy to identify somebody who's doing good well and i'm glad that that conversation got you know i feel like it really ultimately really ended up just sitting in the lap of our small forest owners because that is you're you're right they're exactly the demographic to do this kind of work just, just inherently, I I I don't know if this is a concept that you coined, Jerry, but the the shades of green uh, idea of landscape level management, where you have ideally an arrangement of landowners across the landscape, all with different objectives, uh, 
ecologically minded objectives included, you know, some more focused on timber, some more focused on wildlife. And it just creates this rich mosaic of just like a, a patchwork and heterogeneity that maybe might resemble more natural functions. And I can't think of a better representation of that than uh, small forest owners. Yeah. Um, you know, several 40 acre landowners, all with different objectives, different passions, different ways of managing their forest. Most of them, as you said, not really putting timber or return on capital as their primary objective meaning that they have a, a more diversified set of objectives. Yeah. Uh, so I guess I'm just patting our forest owners on the back right now <laughs> for, for being such a service to society just inherently. Uh, good job. <laughs> there are some bigger owners that do that too. Sure, uh, sure. You know, it isn't just small ones, and not all the small ones that do it well, but most of them, once they learn about ecological forestry, like it. Mm -hmm. One of the problems we had in forestry was uh, uh, if, if people tried to do these sorts of things, first of all, there was no, no, no uh, book that said that this was forestry and this was okay to do. <laughs> and secondly, if you went to extension forestry, in the old days, they'd tell you, well, I think you better clear-cut it and plan new jam. Uh, and uh, so I think one of the values of, of books like Ecological Forest Management is it, it, um, it validates what a, a, a few people have been trying to do for a long time. And a lot of people probably wanted to do, but weren't didn't know you could do that. <laughs> you know, one of the things I've heard a lot of people say, um, whether or not it's just a longer rotation that eventually is harvested or whether it's something that's retained as a, a much longer legacy uh, system, is that uh, they see more die-off in their mature trees. Uh, and I think there's a little bit of fear with the way our climate is currently, you know, moving forward, that we may not have the ability to retain some of these trees as long into the future. Are you worried about that? Are you worried about, you know, our future climate having an impact on the the old growth structure um, that we classically knew it as? Well, yeah, I do worry about it. Um... My general view is that uh, there isn't anything we can do. So, you know, we're just going to have to observe and see what, what happens there. Uh, there isn't anything that, you know, we can really go out and do in an old growth forest to prepare it. Uh, it's probably uh, as well prepared as the forest can be. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and... Uh, Almost certainly, yeah, it worries me, it bothers me. Things are going to change. One of the things, for example, is that uh, as we get warmer and drier summers, one of the things that will happen is that the uh, dead wood will decay at a more rapid rate in the Douglas fir region. And one of the reasons why our logs decay so slowly uh, over here on the west side is because uh, they're waterlogged. There's just okay. just uh, over a hundred percent water uh, content, and so it's very hard for organisms to live in an anaerobic environment and do their thing. So decay in rotting wood on the west side really has to await. Uh, periods in which the wood dries out a little bit, becomes a more aerobic environment. And uh, so as you get longer and hotter, drier summers, there's going to be more extended periods in which active decay processes can go on in the dead wood. And so one of the things that's almost certain to happen is that the equilibrium stock of uh, 
dead wood in the woods and old growth forest is going to go down. Um, another thing that worries me is that hemlock is a very sensitive species to atmospheric moisture stress. And, you know, uh, we see some forests where uh, we're really losing the hemlock component. Uh, my cabin at Wind River, we've lost essentially all the hemlocks. They've all died. Uh, wow. Little ones and big ones. Um, and almost certainly, you know, the summer moisture stresses are the reason why that's happened. And they don't die in a year. They undergo a decline over a number of years. And uh, so, so, you know, what, what could happen? We could end up with forests that uh, lose most or all of their hemlock component. Wow. That's going to be a change. Um, and, you know, I think a lot about, well, what, what would they look like? Uh, what kind of habitat would they provide? <clears throat> so, yeah, there's going to be change in the existing ones. But at this point, I'm more concerned about the management, uh, the managed force and altering the management of those so that they are going to be more resistant and more resilient. More resistant to fire, more resilient after fire, because increased fire is clearly going to be a part of our climate change. And uh, you do that, among other things, by managing forests with a diversity of species rather than a single species. Um, so that's one of the things that you do. Another thing that uh, I advocate over here on the west side is incorporating, uh, a, purposefully incorporating a component of deciduous hardwoods because they are both more resistant to fire, they're not as flammable, and they're also sprouters. So right. wonderful thing about about hardwoods is they sprout. And so you get an immediate resilience, recovery from them. Whereas with the conifers, you got to wait and have some seed and grow seedlings. And so having hardwoods as a component of your managed forest is a, a smart thing to do. We don't really know how to do it yet, but we need to begin to figure out how to do that. So I'm, I'm really more concerned at this point. And in fact, uh, uh, trying to do a lot of thinking uh, about that in collaboration with some of the people at Oregon State. Now, particularly on the federal lands, we are not going to take our plantations, clear cut, burn, and plant new plantations on the federal land. We're going to do that. So what is it we're going to do to those forests that we've managed, those landscapes that are predominantly managed? What are we going to try to create in the way of managed forest systems there? And that involves diversity of species composition, creating structurally diverse stands, uh, et cetera doing retention. Uh, and uh, it turns out that we're likely to end up with forests that are managed forests that are nothing like the uniform Douglas fir plantation, but in fact, are mosaics of conditions. So anyway, that's, I worry about the old growth, but there isn't anything in the mature, there isn't anything to do other than just watch. Uh, but the managed forest landscapes, I, I'm beginning to argue that we have as big a restoration uh, mission in the Douglas fir region as we do on the east side forest because we need something so very different this go around. Jerry, you were a, a pretty fundamental 
uh, maybe voice isn't the right word, but you were a, a fundamental uh, piece in the creation of the Northwest Plan. Uh, and for anyone that is not listening, the Northwest Plan was a a major guiding document for our, our Western Oregon and Washington national forests. It was implemented in 1994, I believe. 1996, 94. Um, <laughs> looking back at it, what do you think the successes have been and what do you think the, the failures have been in that plan? Norm Johnson and I just wrote a book about it. We wrote <laughs> Perfect. A book about the history of the Northwest Forest Plan. And uh, at one point I suggested, you know, uh, the, the subtitle of the book be Triumph and Tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but um, I, the interesting thing is that the Northwest Forest Plan changed everything and resolved almost nothing. Okay, so uh, in terms of accomplishing the goals as they were set out, we didn't accomplish many of the goals, really. Uh, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But but fundamentally, it totally altered the, the primary goal for which these forests were going to be managed. And it just totally turned it on its head from the focus being on timber production to the focus being on management of the ecological systems. So just it just totally changed it. Now, it wasn't the plan that changed it. It was the laws that had been passed that ultimately uh, uh, became uh, dominant here. Uh, the National Forest Management Act of 76 and um, the Endangered Species Act uh, and the, uh, those acts ultimately take the National Forest Management Act as an example. The only way you can achieve the goals of that act, as stated in the act, are by managing these forests as ecosystems. Uh, and uh, in any case, the Northwest Forest Plan was the event that essentially said, okay, this is what those laws really mean. It means this is what you got to do. You got to put the ecosystem and its biota first. And timber comes, or commodities come second. And so that's what it did. Uh, it, it, we went from uh, you know, a, a region where we were cutting 5 billion board feet to where uh, we couldn't even get to a billion board feet. Uh, we changed the landscape from being dominantly committed to wood production to being dominantly committed to ecological objectives. So it changed everything. But one goal was to recover the northern spotted owl. Well, guess what? <laughs> Conservation biologists tell you if you want to recover the northern spotted owl, you got to protect its habitat. And so we did. We protected habitat until it, you couldn't find any more of it, hardly. Uh, and uh, set up a program by which much more of it was going to be created. But we underestimated the impact that the barred owl was going to have. And we hoped and prayed that it wouldn't displace the spotted owl, but it is displacing the spotted owl. So we didn't succeed in that. We did create a network of old growth forest systems uh, that uh, has been able to stand the test of time. So, you know, that was one of the goals, and we did do that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, again, uh, one of our goals uh, 
well, one of our goals had to do with, uh, with fisheries. And one of the things that we've learned is that you cannot recover the fisheries based just on federal lands. Uh, that the critical habitat, as far as most of the fisheries are concerned, aren't on federal ownership. Uh, so in any case, you know, some of the things that we set out to do, uh, we didn't achieve. Uh, but we changed the whole playbook. We lay it all out in the book, the, the successes and, and, and the failures, and also talk about, you know, well, where do we go from here? What do we do? One of the really key decisions is going to be what the Fish and Wildlife Service decides to do about the northern spotted owl. Because the only way you're going to preserve the northern spotted owl is by shooting barred owls. Mm. And, you know, what kind of a program are they going to propose with regards to that? And is it going to be socially acceptable? Mm. Because that barred owl is a real problem, and it's not just a problem for spotted owls. It eats everything. And it's uh, it eats birds, bats, uh, fish, amphibians, crawfish, crustaceans, uh, and we've got a, a new top predator here that is impacting species that have never ever had this kind of predation pressure before. So it's a huge problem. Anytime you bring in a new top predator, it's a big problem. And this one's a lulu. The other thing is, because it eats everything, it has a very small home range. We did defense very aggressively. Uh, 200 acres, just fine for uh, a, a, a pair of barred owls because they, they eat everything in it, 250 acres maybe. In any case, you can put way more pairs of barred owls into the same territory that you would have for one spotted owl which means you're going to have to remove an awful lot of wow. barred owls in order to be able to relieve any significant number of spotted owls. So anyway, that's just one example of adaptation, uh, evolution. And the Northwest Forest Plan was kind of like the, the military talks about war plans. The first casualty of a war is the plan that you had for fighting it. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, things begin to go wrong right away. One of the one other thing on, and I'll shut up about it. <laughs> one of the things we did in the Northwest Forest Plan is we didn't reserve all of the old forests. And we weren't told to do that. We were asked by the president you know, provide us with a scientifically credible plan for the conservation of the northern spotted owl, among other things. And do it. Give me alternatives that are scientifically credible and also allowed under existing law. I don't want to have to go back to Congress and ask them to do anything. And then consistent with scientifically credible and legal, try to cut the community some slack. So we did that. And we left out a couple of million acres of mature and old forest because we didn't think we had to reserve it to achieve those other objectives. Uh, so uh, also, uh, anyway, and, and, and we actually thought when we did the plan that that would provide the timber harvest for several decades until the plantations were mature. Well, society said, bullshit. I don't care what those scientists say. You try to cut down that old forest. We're going to go. We're going to go hang in the trees. We're going to lie down in front of the bulldozers. 
And so very quickly after the plan was adopted and the Forest Service started trying to offer timber sales in old growth, that that wasn't going to fly. Congress knew it wasn't going to fly. The agency knew it wasn't going to fly. And so they just quietly stopped trying to offer any timber sales in old growth. Because you're going to end up in court. You're going to end up, you know, with a bunch of uh, social disorder. You can't have uh, the police force going out with every logger every day on the, it ain't going to work. So my point is simply, you know, that we left in the Northwest Forest Plan a bunch of the old growth out. And society said, no, don't care what you say. That's not going to be logged. We're not going to let you log that. So there was a case where we weren't, well, I don't think we could believe that that was what was going to happen, but it did. <laughs> so, and now it's very clear that none of the mature and old forest that we did not reserve, it should all be reserved. I think, you know, it's very clear even to the agency that, uh, you know, uh, none of it's ultimately no significant amount of it's ever going to be logged. You know, one question generally, I, I think, you know, you have a very ecosystem focus to your f- philosophy of forestry. Um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions to that, but I, I think that a lot of people, especially in the natural resource sector feel that there is, this view that, you know, the opposite end, like you've just explained today, will end up in a situation where we don't harvest at all. And we know population growth is expanding. We know single family dwellings are growing and we need more of them, which means that we need an increased uh, amount of wood as a resource for building and providing those resources for a growing population. And, and arguably, wood is a more renewable and uh, climate-friendly resource than things like uh, cement or concrete or anything like that. I also, you know, I live in a community that is very full of, it's a logging community. And it's not just the resource that we provide for the rest of the nation, but, it, you know, there is a community sense to this. There's, you know, families that rely on each other. And we know that logging has been decreasing over time. Mills have gotten, you know, lower in number, the, the time and distance it takes to, to travel to a mill has gotten longer. Um, and, and arguably one of the big factors behind that has been the decrease in the amount of board feed that's harvested from national forests. Now, obviously this question has some sort of implication to more of a regional context, but how do we going forward in the future manage for both an, a natural resource one we know we need that can sustain these communities and also manage for an ecosystem that, you know, provides the functions that we see even past your, 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 the, what you've talked about with the long rotations of a of hundred years. Well, I'm, I'm a strong advocate for management of forests for the full array of values, including wood production. And for the most part, I'm a strong advocate of managing uh, the forests that we've already harvested. You know, the only ones I'm, I'm, I'm hassling people about is existing mature and old forests. Leave those alone. But otherwise, for the most part, I don't advocate trying to grow old forests uh, on lands that we have previously harvested. But I am an advocate for managing them for multiple values using ecological forestry principles. And those values include wood production. Um, I've been opposed in the state of Washington to taking uh, the trust lands off the table. 
uh, taking uh, the responsibility for, for schools off the table, that's reasonable. But otherwise, I'm a very strong advocate for continuing to manage the state DNR lands for wood production as well as other values, but again, to do it ecologically. So I'm very much of a belief that we could provide for our wood needs uh, by managing existing managed forests ecologically. And that's what, what I would propose to do. And in fact, ultimately you have an adjustment problem that, uh, for example, if uh, forests in the Douglas fir region were managed, all of them on a longer rotation, there'd actually be more wood produced uh, than is being produced now. And for example, the Timos and the Reeds are not maximizing wood production at all. They are actually totally underperforming in terms of wood production on these highly productive lands because they're cutting these forests so early in the development of their mean annual income. So, so anyway, I, and if you look at the last chapter of the book, You'll, you'll see that, you know, that I am a strong advocate for the wood products industry and the need for it in order to allow us to manage these forests and protect these forests. Uh, how the hell would you do it if you didn't get some economic subsidy uh, from wood production or from other uh, you know, maybe someday we'll have a carbon market. Uh, <laughs> so I, that, that's my perspective on it. I And I've been a very critical of the Forest Service for failing to begin to, to harvest its plantations. Hmm. Uh, you know, in this region, it is consistently, rather than going into the older plantations and beginning to do something with those, uh, they have continually tried to go into mature forests and harvest. And, you know, they justify it on the basis, well, it's in the land base according to the Northwest Forest Plan, and so we're supposed to go in and, and cut it. But so anyway, uh, I th I'm fundamentally of the belief that most of the forests that we have managed historically, that we've altered on the west side or altered on the west side through clear cutting and plantations, I'm very much of a belief that uh, we need to be working with those forests. Uh, as a result of climate change. That, uh, you know, we need to be collaborating uh, with those forests to get the best outcome we can possibly get under the kind of changing circumstances that we've got. And to not do that is stupid. Uh, it is, as Spock would say, not logical. <laughs> it's illogical not to be engaged with these forests. Right. And to just uh, let them go on their own after you've altered everything about them and everything about the climate and the land that they're growing on uh, is insane. It's just yeah. not logical. <laughs> yeah. And so... Uh, Anyway, I'm, I'm an advocate for management and I'm an advocate for wood production and support of rural communities in the wood products industry. So Jerry, there, there's a, a book that I think a lot of people read in their careers, especially as if you're going into environmental science, natural resource management, the San, San County Almanac. Mm. Um, and recently we had a, a, an event with 
Kent Woodruff. He was talking about that book and, and using its philosophies um, to, to communicate and educate landowners. And I'm, I'm curious, as somebody who has been in this field for so long and, you know, really digested probably a lot of the, the information that, you know, has been shared in this world, what book or what person has most inspired you in your um, perception of, of the environmental world we, we live in? <laughs> That's interesting. It isn't Leopold. Um, because I've come late to Leopold. <laughs> and uh, he's, he's, he was a remarkable person. He really was. And he was very much about management, uh, even though he was a founder of the Wilderness Society. And I've gone back and read a lot of his stuff. And he was wonderful about being prepared to, to drop old beliefs and adopt new ones. And he's got lots of wonderful sayings. One of them uh, is, you know, about once you learn something about something, you begin to care about it. Mm-hmm. And he's absolutely right. Uh, and he certainly was thinking about the ecosystem, although he didn't have the word, he used the word land. Uh, but uh, like I say, I've come late to Leopold, and um, I've thought that probably the most important book uh, in a policy sense was probably Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. I think her book stimulated the legislation that the United States Congress passed back in the 60s and 70s. I think it was very important in in that outcome. Uh, But personally, you know, it's really interesting. It wasn't any of the great philosophers that that uh, stimulated me. One of the uh, one of the books that that really I think had a, a lot of influence on me was a book uh, called Tatouche uh, by a woman who was a lookout uh, during the war on a on a uh, an, uh, uh, a lookout on the Packwood Ranger District of the Columbia National Forest at the time, Martha Hardy, who was a math teacher. And she wrote a, a wonderful book that I read as a teenager on her experiences. And uh, they they touched a lot of, of things about forests and landscapes. Uh, so, and of course, uh, I was a Boy Scout, so one of the things I read was uh, one of the books was Hank Witten Smoke Chaser, and another one was Hank Witten Smoke Jumper, uh, and Boy's Life, and uh, and they were very influential in encouraging me to continue to think in terms of becoming a forester, and uh, so. It was so, 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 sort of some of that. And if, I, if I had to find a philosopher and a series of books that probably was very influential, it was a series of books by Sam Campbell, who was a naturalist. And he and his wife, Jenny, had an island in a lake uh, up in the Lake States uh, that they called the Sanctuary. And every summer they'd go to this, and every winter he'd write a book based on their experiences there, uh, about their experiences with different animals um, and the environment. And I think my father read those to our family. And uh, over probably a 10-year period, and I think that was influential as well. 
I haven't read any of those books, so now I have <laughs> a list to to begin to work well, through. <laughs> if nothing else, Tatouche is a lot of fun to read. Yeah, and, uh, I, I've reread it a couple of times, uh, but uh, anyway, uh, it wasn't any of the great philosophers. Uh, it was just the total environment that I was subjected to camping, uh, fishing, hunting, uh, hiking. Hmm. And uh, then I discovered at eight years old that you actually can get paid to go out and work in the forest. (laughs) Wow. So I started reading everything I could about forestry at that point. I was halfway through college when I figured that out. I'd already spent a lot of money. I could have, I would have, Benefit a lot from learning that earlier. <laughs> you know, Jerry, um, something you said about Leopold and, and his use of the word land instead of ecosystem. I was reading a book uh, called Fire Country, uh, how indigenous fire management could help save Australia. And over there, they use a very similar use of the word land. And it's not... Um, I'm going to butcher these. I'm not an English major. I think uh, it's not a noun. So it's not a person, place, or thing. Um, it's more of, a, of an adjective. It's, it's this, it's a, it's a whole comprehensive word that describes both their home, the people that reside within it, the, the plant community, the resources that they re- rely on, this extremely interconnected web very similar to what the word ecosystem tries to derive in its, you know, Greek origins. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that that's, you know, a really powerful word. And I think it's something that we lack in our society is a more comprehensive connection to that landscape, a more comprehensive connection to the ecosystem. And that when we take resources from it, we also have to remember that we, we, we have to equally give back to that ecosystem. So, I, you know, I just want to profusely say thank you. Um, thank you for taking the time to sit down. and. Well, thanks for being interested in doing it. I love to talk about it. Well, uh, to all of our listeners, thank you for hanging on for, I think we're sitting in an hour and 51 minutes by the time I end this. Um, <laughs> it'll probably be a little bit shorter, but uh, thank yeah. you, everybody, and enjoy your day.